Hello, I'm Emily Grace, and welcome to the Stages podcast of Bernstein Private Wealth Management. Life throws lots of challenges at us. We're here to discuss them. Having helped families prioritize what makes money meaningful for them and then invest for that purpose for close to 20 years now, I've seen people through many markets and many life events. And while every market is different, what remains constant is the need for guidance and advice through all the uncertainty. Being able to help people navigate these markets and to be able to introduce them to some of the smartest investment minds and experts in other fields, whatever the stage in their life, is a real honor. If you or someone you know would like my advice or an introduction to my guest, you can reach me at emily.grace at bernstein.com. Raising children today may seem simple, but it's certainly not easy. There are countless issues that parents need to consider in order to rear competent global citizens. I've invited Taru Clavel, author of World Class, One Mother's Journey Halfway Around the Globe in Search of the Best Education for Her Children, to join me on the stage today to discuss how countries around the world educate their children and how you can help your children be competitive on a world-class scale. Taru, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So your story is absolutely fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write World Class? Sure. So I am half Japanese, and I grew up speaking Japanese as my first language, and my home was culturally Japanese. And when I had children, I grew up mostly in New York City, in the New York City area. And then when I had my own children, I kind of looked at them and thought, well, how am I going to give them any kind of a cultural experience And then luck would have it that in 2006, when I had these two kids still in diapers, we had the opportunity to go to Hong Kong. And I thought, wow, okay, fantastic. It will just give them something something like what I had growing up. Yes. And so we went off to Hong Kong in 2006. uh, And then a few years later, we had our third child in 2009. And then in 2010, we moved to Shanghai and were there for two years. From Hong Kong. From Hong Kong, yeah. And then... From 2012 to 16, we had the opportunity to live in Tokyo. And that was great for me because I could speak Japanese and my kids could learn how to speak Japanese. And then... Did you know how to speak Japanese before you got there? Or was that something that you learned? I mean, had you learned it here at home through your family? Yeah, it was my first language. That was the language that I spoke at home. Absolutely. But I hadn't taught my kids a word of it. Um, We'd only really done the Mandarin. Okay. So in 2016, though, it was time we felt to move back to the United States. My oldest was going to be starting middle school, and I really wanted to get him ready for going to university in the U.S. So we came back and were in in Palo Alto, California for two years, and then did actually come around the world and ended up back in New York City in 2018. And when we were overseas, I enrolled my kids in the local public schools where we lived, unlike what expatriates typically do, which is to send their kids to an international school. And international schools will follow the curriculum of the countries that they represent. So they have American schools, French, German, Swiss, um, Canadian, that kind of thing. Like we've got the Lycée Francais here exactly. in New York, and you walk away with a French degree as opposed to Precisely. American. Yeah. Uh, but we decided to do something different. And it was when we came back in 2016 for that academic year, 2016 to 17, at that time with three kids, one in middle school and two in elementary school. We were in the public schools of Palo Alto, which was at the time considered the best public school district in the state of California. I was honestly rather gobsmacked because what happened thereafter was my son, who was in fifth grade at the time, had five classroom teachers that year. Within one year, the five secondary school heads had quit. The superintendent 
uh, resigned on the spot. There were just, there was just a very I felt like systemic problems that were not going to be fixed. And could you tell if this was unusual or the norm? Nobody was surprised at the turnover, or was it? That's such a good question <laughs> because you know I walked around thinking, okay, there must be other people here who think this is a little crazy. Yes. And what I found was a lot of people who thought my situation was kind of an anomaly. But at the t- same time, I'm thinking, but wait, the superintendent quit on all of us. Yes, or, not just you me, know, not or, just my kids. You know, and and I don't, and I, and I don't know. I, I think if I had to theorize about it, I think parents, for the most part, will sacrifice almost anything for their kids' educations. And when you go to a place like Palo Alto, you are paying high tax dollars so that your kids can get a great education. And it's a big sacrifice for a lot of people. And it's really hard to accept that maybe something may not be going as well as I'd hoped. Yes. Because when there's systemic problems, there's very little you can do as a, as a parent. You can do things on the fringes or things in your home. But when you're sending your child to a school every day where you don't even know if there's going to be a classroom teacher... Or there are, and I talk about this in world class, my son who was in middle school saw no less than 10 animated films in one year. And I kind of thought, oh my gosh, if you actually do the math, that's basically more than a week of school. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of movies. That is you a know? lot of time. Um, and and, and it, there's something to be said for maybe downtime or if there's a yes. film that's related to what they're being taught in the classroom. But I mean, cloudy with the chance of meatballs for for a group of sixth graders. <laughs> Maybe weather. I don't know. Like it was like AccuWeather forecasting. You know, I just there and there were a bunch of titles like that that yes. were just. I don't. I mean, I mean, they kind of justified Hercules with Greek myths. Okay. You know, but the, but there, yeah. So there was just a bunch of stuff that I that I noticed wasn't really working. So oh, back to the question, which is why did why did world class come to be and based on, because I was also an education journalist while I was in Asia, so based on my kids' personal experiences and based on my professional work experience, when I came to the, to the U.S., I said, okay, I have a book. I have a book I can write about. I can write about what they're doing overseas, the practices that may inform U.S. parents and give them some kind of a, a, a global context to help with their educational choices. Oh, it's fantastic. I I remember you wrote at one point in the book, you said something about, I think you were in Japan at the time, in Tokyo, although you'll correct me when I say that's <laughs> the wrong country, but you were someplace and you were supposed to write about sort of the, the work that they did in school that year. And you said, can't I just take the uh, the article from last year <laughs> that was and Japan. republish it because they do the same yeah. thing every year. And so I guess that gets to sort of what was it like as a mother raising three children in three countries during such formative years for you, right, to to see how different all of this was? Well, I think that's, it's kind of this two-part answer because I was socialized to parent in Asia. Yes. So coming back to the U.S. and seeing the different expectations or, or kind of what practices I was seeing was really surprising. So I'll give you an example. My daughter, who was, when we came back to the U.S. and we're in Palo Alto, we were in, she was in second grade. And I called it, and I, I'll just be, I'll use proper nouns here, but I enrolled her in a school called Duvenick. Okay. And she could, and one of the reasons I liked where we lived was because she could bike to school on her own 
and she was in second grade. And in Japan, in first grade, starting in first grade, kids are independent. So they can walk around the streets and do everything on their own, go to and from after school activities, on buses, subways, whatever it is. So I thought this is fantastic. In second grade, in the U.S., she can still get to school on her own. Yes. And her brother was actually in fifth grade. So if they, you know, they needed to, they, or they, could, do they could do it together. It was fine. And I went to school one day while she was in second grade, and this mom came up to me, and she said, I never see you here. And I looked at her and go, is there a problem? Why should I be here? Yes. And she's like, because all the other moms do drop off and pick up. And yes. I kind of looked at her like, why would I take that away from my child? She's independent. Yeah. And it was kind of, and I understand that because in Japan for three years in preschool, it was almost mandatory that I walk my daughter to preschool and pick her up. Yes. And I did that. And those were beautiful. And you were teaching her, her how to get there. Yes, and to- yes. And it was just, it was a beautiful three years. And there's kind of this unwritten rule in Japan that that's the end of it. When they're six and they start first grade, which is when compulsory education begins, you are not to be doing that anymore because you are giving them the gift of independence. So it was it's kind so of amusing. Fascinating, yeah. Right. And so you had grown up with the whole idea that the way one parents overseas, right, in Asia, in whichever country it was, mm-hmm. was the way it was supposed to be done. And it, here you are in the U.S. being yeah, <laughs> looked at askew. Exactly. I was like, what's going on? So th- that was one thing. And then I would say the other interesting thing about the parenting my kids is that I look at them now. So my youngest is. 10, and then I have an almost 14, and then a 15-year-old. So I have one in high school, one in middle, and one in elementary. Yes. And they are all so different because of the times in their lives that we moved. So my oldest is, he's like a native Mandarin speaker. He speaks English, Mandarin like a native speaker, and then he speaks Japanese. But his Japanese isn't nearly as strong as my youngest, who's 10, who went to Japanese schools in her most kind of formative language you know, learning years, which was from three through seven. Oh, my goodness. And then my middle one is kind of this mix, and he can kind of choose if he wants to focus on the Mandarin or the Japanese. Um, but the thing that they, the all three have mastered, interestingly, because they went to school in these languages, is the reading and the writing. So my oldest oh, yes. can actually still read Japanese novels, even though his spoken Japanese isn't as strong because he doesn't speak it all the time, but those characters and the memorization right, he did, are just in they're, they're in there. Embedded. They're embedded. Yes. I think it's kind of funny. Yeah. What was it like for them coming back? Oh, that's such a good question, too, because I kind of liken it to summer camp. Yes. <laughs> because it was so, it was just, so my, my oldest at the time was put in this big public middle school. And they're, I, just to give you an idea, I think they're, 350 or 400 students to one class dean. Wow. So he was just kind of this number in a sea of kids, which is very typical in U.S. public schools. And he just, the learning standards weren't as high, and you have to be very kind of self-motivated if you, I mean, you're basically only going to get a call from the teacher if your child is flunking, or at one point I think someone vandalized a school and super glued all the doors. Oh, no. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh about it because it was actually very bad for the district. Of course. But if, if you are the parent of that child, you're yes. getting the phone call. But yes. otherwise, you're kind of not. And so I think they thought it was just kind of easy. And there are palm trees everywhere. I mean, yes, it's, it's like, warm. It's beautiful. It's like <laughs> Stanford University is right there. I was like, this is, yeah, I mean, you, you drive, you know, an hour away and you go whale watching. I mean, it's very it's just yes. a very different kind Life. of a, yeah. 
Um, and I was driving them everywhere for the first time, which was also very strange for them because in Japan, that you know where we just come from, they had complete autonomy. Right, they would get themselves around. Yeah, They'd never have to say, "Mom, can you take me here?" Never or never. How, would you? Would they tell you where they were? Like, did you know where they were, or oh, was yeah. the expectation sort of that they were just all like, you know? It used to be, right, you would literally send your kids out for the day and they'd come home at the end of the day. And yeah. you'd say, where have you been? What have you done? You know, and not in an accusatory yes. way, but out of true curiosity and share with me. Yeah. Was that the way it was in, in Japan? It, it was, or was more, it more so like that. So my daughter, who is now 10, she still spends her summers in Japan because her school year is finished. Um, not the school year, but because her school year actually begins April 1. But right the summer vacation begins towards the end of July. Okay. So she spends June and July and she goes back to her school that she attended and she loves it. She's like back with her friends that she was together with since she was three years old. And so it's very interesting. It's so different because in the US, you don't do that. You don't just say, see ya, you know, have a good yes. day. But in Japan in the summers, she'll say, Oh, I made friends with I, I or I'm I'm seeing such and such at the at the at the playground and we're meeting up and then we're gonna go have lunch and they'll just go to a convenient shop and get, oh. you know, little sandwiches or something and take it back to the park and eat and then yes. they'll play there and they'll go to the community center and then she'll come right. back at the so end of the day. Have a general sense of where yes. she is, but yeah. not but not the same as here where parents would expect that their kid was at least checking in. I mean, at 10, most parents would not even permit it. Yeah. But if they did, they'd expect, okay, let me know when you're leaving location A and moving to location B mm -hmm. to C. Yeah. Wow, very, so very really different. different way of approaching it. You know, thinking about things being different, how do Jap China, Japan, and the U.S. all educate children differently, right? What do they do differently? Oh, that's a, okay. So that's a loaded question. I can say, <laughs> I'll, I'll pick up on a Tune few. in for the next three hours. Yes, for the next three. <laughs> or just read, read world class. Read the book. Read, read world read class. Read world class. Um, I would say... I'll pick up a few themes that I think would be probably most interesting to your listeners, which, and this is a story that I write about in World Class. When we moved to Shanghai, my oldest was in first grade, and he attended a school that was minimalist is kind of a nice way to okay. put it, but he didn't have running water, there wasn't heat, there were troughs in the bathroom. Wow. Um, and, and it was also a time when China still had the one-child policy. And I had three, and he was the oldest of three, and I couldn't speak Mandarin. And he attended a public school, which kind of legally, if you're not Chinese, you're not allowed to attend. So I wasn't going to make any stink about anything. No. So I go to pick him up, and the teacher had him after school and a few other classmates of his. And I can't communicate. I don't know what's going on. And he was just sitting in the classroom. And slowly the other kids file out, and he's still there. And I'm looking through, like, this this door window, and and I'm pointing at my watch. And I'm like, it's what are you know, go. so we got to go. And then the clock's ticking. You know, every, every second feels like it's an hour because I have two little ones right. that I have to pick up at their preschool. Right, you can't be late for them. And I can't be late. And I can't communicate with the school. And this is before smartphones and everything really worked. Yes. So even if I could call the school, like I, I don't even know how to, I can't speak Mandarin to be like, I'm yes. going to be late. And I feel like we're guests of this whole place anyway. So I don't want to ruffle any feathers. So to make a long story short, he finally comes out, my, my, my oldest, and he's kind of crying. Oh. And I feel so terrible about it. And I'm, and because and, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I put my kid in this bare-bones school right. and, and now they're treating him badly and he's not even a discipline case and I was going to hate school and I'm such a bad mother. And and what really happened was he was kept after school because he didn't get a 95 on his math 
quiz for the day. And the irony in the whole story is that he was crying because I was really upset. He thought it was fine. He had no issue at all staying after school. And he said, Mama, all the kids who don't do well on that day's stuff, they just stay. And that sometimes the teacher gives them dinner. It's okay. It's just, right, that's how it works. That's but it, he yeah. thought you were disappointed. Yes. I, well, I was just <laughs> angry that I couldn't leave. And, and that you had no to, clue why, why he was exactly. there. And, so, and if you asked him even today what his favorite subject is, he'd tell you it's math. And he's literally two years ahead in math wow. because of that level of rigor. Um, so to me, that whole idea of mastery, what does mastery actually mean? Yes. It's knowing the content on the first take in being accountable for it. And if you don't do that, then you do whatever it takes to be able to master that content. If it means the teachers stay after school with you, or they do a lot of partnering in the classroom with, with the student who maybe can master it, with the one who isn't, is is, hap- is having maybe a little more difficulty with yes. it. But just this idea of, of everybody can do it. What I love also is this idea that it's, you know, I feel like here, it's oftentimes, you know, if you don't get something, you're in sort of remedial math. Mm. You know, it's it's almost like there's something wrong, yeah. right? Or you just, you know, you can't figure it out. And it sounds like the message that these children received was, of course, some things just take people longer, and therefore we take the time to, to yeah. learn it. And it was really nice, and it was, it was no big deal. And it wasn't, and I think... There's this, there's this term in the U.S. that people use, which is this inherent bias, that certain kids just because they grew up from a socioeconomically disadvantaged background or maybe their family doesn't speak English at home, yes. that they're, just, they're naturally going to have more difficulty. And in this school in, in Shanghai, and it was considered a model or a key school for the district, so it's, it's one of the top performing schools, but it didn't matter where you came from. And my, my oldest best friend didn't have front teeth because of tooth decay because his family didn't know anything about dental hygiene. Yes. It, it, no so, fluoride in the water. No, none of that stuff, right? But it didn't matter that his, his parents were migrant workers and everybody was going to meet the standard. So that was, that was actually a beautiful, beautiful thing for me to see, and it's informed a lot of my parenting. And I think my kids, too, now have very high expectations for themselves because they, were, they had to be accountable to that standard. And do you think when you say it's informed your parenting, do you think it's sort of caused you to hold your children to a higher level? I think I think you say at one point in your book that, you know, you should talk beyond your child's, le- like what you think your child can understand. And yeah. it, I do remember having, having when my children were infants, that my yeah. mother told me I could read anything to them. So Eloise, <laughs> my almost six-year-old, heard the goldfinch. Oh, that's so, so she's cool. A newborn. My mother said, you know, they're just creating neurons. Yeah. And so it's, you don't have to read, you know, Baba Black Sheep or yeah. you know, whatever it is. You can read whatever book you want. Yes. And they will, it's just the words. It is. And I, so I, I read my own books and she listened in. <laughs> I, no, I think that's actually fascinating. And, and as someone who did learn English as a second language, that's me, yes. you know, and I would be in class. I remember being in class and it was, you know, English class or English language arts class. And there would be these kids in the class who just knew everything. And yes. they didn't, the, the vocab words weren't new to them. And there I am actually learning the vocabulary. And it's something that's really stuck with me. It's how did they know that already? And it's because the parents exposed them to it already. And they were reading those books. And they were probably reading the newspaper 
you know, and, right. and, and so they were exposed to it already. And right, going so beyond going what beyond. somebody of that age would be expected to know walking into school. Yeah, and I found those kids to be so confident. And I wasn't. And I felt like, okay, I have to make sure when I parent my kids that I'm doing that. And then I saw it actually happening in the classrooms where I was overseas. Which is fascinating. Now, we're, we're sitting here in New York City. Yes. Right? Recording this podcast. Why... I guess, why does globalization and the way that kids are learning in other countries, like why does that matter? Why does that matter to us? You know, we're not going to necessarily sit here and change the entire mm-hmm. education system in the U.S. I, I mean, maybe you will. Maybe <laughs> you will. And I'm going to have you on <laughs> stages again to talk all about it. But why, why should this matter to our families and to our listeners? Well, I think... And, and this is so cliche, but the U.S. does suffer from this exceptionalism. And I can tell you when I came to the U.S. and people would say, oh, you know, so you were working in Asia. What did you do? And I said I was an education journalist. Oh, what did you specialize in? I say, oh, international education. Yes. And people would look at me like, what in the world is that? You right. know? And, and what happens is when you're outside of the U.S., right, you look at the currency. Everything is pegged to the dollar. So these kids, from the time they can look at any chart on a bank, you know, they're seeing everything is against U.S. dollar sign. Yes. So they have their eyes on this. And then when you think about the media. From a very early age. Yeah, from the time they learn about money. Yes. Right? And then when they think about media and movies and what they're seeing. I mean, I was in the middle of Inner Mongolia and the bus driver was watching Mr. and Mrs. Smith. You know, (laughs) and I was like, wait, these these aren't even roads. Like, we're in dirt. And it was it was... That that's so powerful. We have such a strong influence, and right, English are is looking to America. They're looking to America, so I think it informs this kind of practice of exceptionalism. Um, but what's happening now? When you look at you know, and, and living in Shanghai was no piece of cake for me. I mean, we were at the very tail end of kind of that double digit annual um, GDP growth. Okay, and what that meant to me was. You know, and I was an Asian studies major, and I thought, oh, you know, and I read all these books about the New Horizon in China, and that's such an amazing opportunity. We're going there, and we're, it's like the gold rush, right. you know? You're like, I saw the picture of Shanghai 20 years ago, yeah, and here like it is today. Yeah, these romantic ideas of, like, dumplings, and I mean, it's like ridiculous. Yes. And when you get there, what the change actually means is that nothing stays the same. Okay. So when you're living in a place where nothing stays the same, where, you know, you get your hair cut, and then you go back there the following month, it's not there anymore. You're going to a part of the city and the GPS doesn't work. I mean, there was a great China firewall, but because the whole area has been raised and rebuilt right, right, in three it's months. Totally different. Completely. So it's 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 jarring. I mean, we lived in an ex communist tenement that I do talk about in world class and and you'd be living next to these 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 kind of decrepit housing conditions where they still have, you know, ten kind of one room apartments where three people may live with a shared bathroom and a shared communal kitchen. And we're talking made out of concrete with years, decades of caked in oil, right? And this is how, this is, and these were our neighbors. And then the next day, the same neighbor, one of the neighbors would show up in a BMW and he hit out of the ballpark in one night. Yes. His life circumstance completely completely Literally in one night. And that's what it was like living there. Um, It was, it was this, yeah, and I don't even know what question you just asked did me. It like, <laughs> did it feel the same in the education system, right? Was or did that stay constant, or did you see a lot of change there? Well, oh, that, that's okay. So I guess that's 
I mean, that the question was, why does globalization matter? Oh, okay, so I'll go right? back to why that, and then I can care ask about you. It, but. So we should care because, you know, whereas the U.S. used to be number one, and then you had Japan, and then you had China. Now, in the last couple of years, China is now the number two, and it is definitely going to take over as number one. So if we care about our jobs in our future, and we look at who has, even if you look at by 2030, over 50% of our college graduates in the world will be coming from India and China. And you think about... Say that percent again. Over 50%. Yes. Of our college-educated populace in the world. And then when you think about who is studying STEM at the undergrad and graduate level at our universities that are where the world congregates, right, to do research and development. Yes. If you talk to any professors or if you just look at the student bodies, a majority, and it's not just a small (laughs) majority, come from East Asian countries and India. And so when you think about, okay, so when we look at our kids who are in school today, what kind of a world are we educating them for? If they don't know how to collaborate with our global counterparts that are thriving academically, they will be taking over our jobs. They'll be left behind. We we will be left behind. We absolutely will be left behind. So we have to know where they're coming from and what they are doing because they are – there's no question the Chinese that the China is going to be the world's number one economic powerhouse. And when you look at our politics today, and we look at our trade agreements, and I mean, this is going to inform our next generation. Yes, yeah. And I would say, I, I want to tell everybody that there are a number of spots in your book where you lay out some practical things that families can do yeah. from you know talking above your child, right, mm-hmm. letting them hear more, you know, keeping a lot of books around, right, you have quite a few practical things, so I do recommend that you pick up the book and read it, because they're, I'm not going to make you list it all out right now, Tarun, <laughs> I'm not going to list it all out, but yeah, it's there. But, the, but they're practices within your home, and I would say if there's one thing that you can just listen to this to this podcast and say, okay, I'm going to change one thing, it would be just think about the educational values in your home and what are you role modeling? Because if you care so much about sports, for example, and that's the predominant conversation or the amount of time you're spending outside of school talking about, then your kids are going to want your validation and approval, and they're going to be really good at sports. Yes. And if you're not talking about the academics or the reading or the shows or the art or the community center or the other places that offer so many other things – they're not going to take advantage of that stuff. Right. That's not where they're going to see it. It's not. And it's fascinating because it's very much what I talk about with families here. Mm. And I'll have, you know, we do a lot of thinking about what their priorities and values are and how they're imparting those to their children. Mm-hmm. And then how that plays into how we should build the portfolio for them and where we need to invest it and all of those things. But I'll have people come to me and say, okay, my children are in their teens or early 20s and I've never talked to them about my values. And my answer to that is you actually have because when you're taking them to karate four times a week instead of reading to them every night, mm-hmm. they're seeing that's where the emphasis is. Yes. And, you know, when you're spending a lot of money on big vacations, mm-hmm. right, versus, you know, time to get – and that might be time together as a family, right? And yeah. so it could be good. But, but people are – kids are very – 
very observant. Oh, yeah. They, they definitely <laughs> say everything you don't want them to say. Yep. Right. That's the, they have at my son's preschool, they have something called news of the day <sighs> where a child gets up and gets to say something, you know, stand up in front of the class and say, you know. It's like a window this, into your family this morning, room. Mommy and daddy <laughs> fought and daddy and mommy were in different rooms oh, and I'm wearing a beret. Yeah. Right? So usually the things are not at all connected. <laughs> but at the end of the year, you get this little package oh, and you gosh. realize is this what the teachers have been thinking all year? Oh my gosh, they know everything. They know everything. Oh, they know so everything. Funny. So now in one word. Yes. What's next for your family? Right? You're in New York now. Are you what, what's next for your family? The first word that popped into my head was stability. <laughs> stability. Stability. I just want them to be just calm right, and stay right. in New York and and New York has always been our home base because we came back here every summer. Okay. Uh, and that was something so that I always did felt very that intentionally. Connection. Yeah, oh. so my oldest, he is a diehard Yankee fan. And I did that very, very intentionally because I wanted him to always have a home team and a home city yes. regardless of where we lived outside, you know. And you always planned to come back. Yes. Yeah. Right, it was always there. So it's sort of laying the, laying the groundwork for it. Yeah, that's what I, I was hoping. And I'm, I'm glad it happened. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Karu Clavel, author of World Class, Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I loved hearing how important values, right? We've been talking about the values and whether those in your own family or those in the country or the school in which your child's learning, you know, are so important in the child's future. You know, it's something that we spend a lot of time on here. And so it's, it was interesting to hear that thread throughout the book and Absolutely. throughout our conversation today. Now, if you'd like to speak with me and my family engagement team, you can reach me at emily.grace. Sorry, I know my name. <laughs> emily.grace at bernstein.com. And you could connect with Taru by going to www.taruclavel.com. That's T-E-R-U-C-L-A-V-E-L.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Have a great day.